Dear friends of Jesus Christ, in 1949, the Communist Party took over power in China. Soon after that, Christian missionaries were forced to leave. The preacher Fred Craddock knew one such missionary family. It happened one morning that this family of four heard a knock at their door. It was a band of soldiers. You have two hours to leave, they said. You're allowed to bring 200 pounds worth of your belongings. We'll be back. Immediately, this family began to sift through their belongings. What should we take? They asked each other. 200 pounds adds up quickly. We just bought this typewriter, the husband said. It's heavy, but I paid a lot of money for it. We can buy another typewriter, the wife responded. What we need to pack is our photo albums and our family heirlooms. After some heated debate, the family finally managed to agree on what to take and what to leave. And two hours later, they had 198 pounds worth of their most beloved belongings packed into a suitcase. The soldiers returned. Are you ready? They asked. Yes, we're ready, the family said. Have you weighed your possessions? Yes, we did. Here they are, 198 pounds. Did you include your kids in the 200 pounds? Uh, no. The kids need to be weighed too? Yes. The mother and the father looked at each other, and without a word of argument, they dropped their bags and scooped up their young children. We're ready, they said. Fred Craddock uses this story to talk about what he refers to as the moment of truth. There are moments in our life where everything shifts and something new comes into focus. Moments when a new reality crashes, crashes in upon us and overturns our world. The things we once held dear become worthless. The things that we once built our life upon, we leave behind without thinking twice. Something like this happened to the merchant in one of Jesus' parables. When he saw the pearl of great value in the market, marketplace, everything else in his life just faded completely away. And in his joy, he went home and he sold all his possessions just so that he could attain the pearl. The kingdom of God is like this, says Jesus. When I, well, I think it's safe to say that Paul had such an experience, a moment of truth in his life, the day Christ came knocking on his heart. Before this, Paul was merrily filling up his suitcases with religious deeds and blameless living. He was a top prospect in seminary, a rising star in the Jewish Sanhedrin. His pedigree was pristine, a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day. And Paul didn't just talk the talk, he lived out his faith with zeal. He rightly saw that the Jesus movement was a threat to the Jewish community, and so he actively resisted it. Yes, Paul was building up quite a reputation for himself, and he felt fairly proud about the life he was building. But all that changed on the road to Damascus. Some of you know the story. 
Paul was traveling to Damascus because the Jesus movement has spread there, and Paul wanted to go there and stop those who were preaching Christ. He wanted to arrest them. But along the way, the resurrected Jesus appeared to Paul in blinding light. Paul's name at that time was Saul. Saul, Saul, Jesus called out to him, why are you persecuting me? And thus begins Saul's transformation. And the change was totally radical, 180 degrees. Saul went from being the chief persecutor of the faith to being the chief promoter of the faith. The former things that he had built his life upon, his name, his pedigree, his moral record, all of this stuff, it just became nothing. Garbage. Something to throw out. All this faded away in comparison to the gain of knowing Christ and being found in him. Paul had found the pearl of great price. In chapter 3 of his letter to the Philippians, Paul shares his testimony with the church. His hope is in doing so is that the church in Philippi will, will join him in rejoicing in the Lord and that they too would follow him in living in Christ's victory and in the hope of the resurrection to come. You know, the early church had a lot of theological uh, thorny issues to work through. The most significant one revolved around how to classify Gentile believers who came to be followers of Jesus. Were they now members of God's holy family, or did they need to be circumcised in order to be called part of the covenant of Abraham? The Old Testament seems pretty clear on this point. In Genesis 17, for instance, God made an everlasting covenant with Abraham, and the sign of that covenant to be part of God's people, that was circumcision. This is what God says to Abraham. As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you. This is my covenant with you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant. So there it is, right? Chapter and verse. All natural-born Jews and all foreigners who are brought into the Jewish family are to be circumcised. This is an everlasting covenant. Chop it off or be chopped off. I have a few more circumcision jokes coming, <laughs> FYI. So the in-house conversation in the early church on this issue was fierce. This was such a hot topic that Paul even circumcised his ministry partner, Timothy, just so Timothy wouldn't be a stumbling block to the Jewish people that they were trying to minister to. That's what I call taking one for the team. 
One wonders if Paul would have done things differently, however, if he would have met Timothy later on, for Paul's thinking on circumcision crystallizes pretty quickly. For Paul, the external sign of the covenant is not the thing itself. What matters is not having the mark on your body, but having a heart that is consecrated to the Lord. So he writes to the church, for it is we who are the, circ- the circumcision. He's writing to Gentile Christians. It is we who are those who belong to the family of God. We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh. What matters is not the mark on the body, but the presence of the spirit in the heart of the believer who comes to Christ. Paul's thinking on this subject won the day. It was adopted by the Council of Jerusalem and became official teaching in the church. But the Judaizers, those mutilators of the flesh, as Paul calls them, they didn't go away. They kept insisting that circumcision was necessary to be part of God's family. So Paul, in his letters, often you find him warning people, watch out for these people. Don't listen to them. Stay away from them. What's the big deal, we might ask? Why fuss over a square inch of flesh? Why not let each individual church decide how to handle this situation on their own? To this, Paul would say, no way, not a chance. For at stake in this is more than a bit of flesh. At stake is the power of the gospel itself. The good news that causes great rejoicing is not that we meet God halfway and that our acts in the body somehow fill up what is lacking in Christ. The good news that leads to rejoicing is that Christ, that in Christ, absolutely nothing is lacking. He fulfilled the law entirely. He was without sin completely. And yet he, out of love, fully gave himself, fully laid down his life, suffered on the cross, endured hell and exclusion from God, died and was buried. So that we, the ungodly, who deserved such a fate, could be made righteous and welcomed into the household of God. This he did for us while we were yet sinners, And this he gives to us through faith, period. Faith alone, not faith and circumcision. Faith alone, not faith and the right sorts of good deeds or membership in the right sort of church. Faith alone. The good news of the gospel is that it it doesn't depend on me or my performance in the flesh. I bring nothing. I lean on nothing. My only comfort is Christ. That's the confidence I have. Not me, but Jesus. And the church enters into dangerous territory whenever we teach or even hint that something needs to be added to Christ in order to shore up our status before the Father. For that takes away from the glory that Jesus is due and introduces unnecessary anxiety into our life with God. 
I mean, who's to say that circumcision is the only holdover from the Old Testament? What about the other feasts and festivals? The Passover wasn't optional for Jews. Do Gentile believers need to keep the Passover too? Or what if the doctor had a wobbly hand the day of your circumcision and 10% of your foreskin was left intact? Is that good enough? Are you in? Or do you have to go back for a redo just to make sure? Or what about women? If circumcision is a necessary boundary marker that marks one's, uh, to seals one's status in the family, then what's, what's the status for women? Do you need to be married to a circumcised man in order to belong to God's family? What if you're married to an uncircumcised man who isn't a believer and is not willing to get circumcised? All this produces fear, anxiety, and that's not the point of the gospel. Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior. And all this comes out so beautifully in Paul's testimony that he shares with the church. He shares his testimony to describe the, the complete and radical difference between the luggage he used to carry trying to live this blameless life according to the law and the new joy that he has found through faith in Christ. If anyone had reason to be confident in himself, it was Paul, but all the fancy feathers he was gathering in his cap turned to dust the day he came to know Christ. Paul's words here are so good, they are worth repeating. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. The things he formerly thought of as profit, he now considers to be loss. The things he used to hold on to at night and rely on for his security and purpose and place in the community, all that is just garbage now in comparison to the pearl, knowing Christ Jesus. You know, we spend so much of our lives trying to, to measure up and, and fit in and belong we try to prove ourselves to the to prove to the universe that, that we are worthy of love and acceptance. We carefully cover over our flaws with stories and accessories. We do what we need to do to, to please the crowd we want to belong to. We evaluate ourselves in comparison to others. When they fall, we feel a little bit better about ourselves and our lovableness. When we fall, it feels like the world is ending. We're deathly afraid that people will come to know the real me, so we hide from God and we hide from the things that shore up our, we hide behind the things that shore up our shaky identity. We cross our fingers hoping that will be enough. But that game never ends and it leaves us feeling isolated and anxious. When we're putting our confidence in the wrong things, these things are not gonna, 
do what we want them to do. Brittany and I have been watching uh, The Good Place on Netflix. I don't know why they won't post season four. I'm, I'm waiting. Anyway, The Good Place is a show about the afterlife. There's a heaven and there's a hell. Heaven is the good place. Hell is the bad place. And what determines a, human's, a human being's final destination is their performance on earth. In order to track that performance, there's an office building in a neutral place filled with robot-like accountants who are tracking the thoughts, words, and deeds of everyone on earth. Everything gets recorded. Everything gets weighed and is given either a positive or a, a negative number. And those who finish life with a positive number go on to the good place. Those who finish with a negative number go to the bad place. I've been, as I've been watching this, I've been noticing that God is more or less absent from the plot of the good place. The justice system is a cold algorithm. I haven't finished the show yet, so I don't know if God or some sort of grace ends up breaking through the storyline. I hope it does. But I'm sure glad that the true story of the world is so much different than the narrative laid out in the good place. There is a heaven and a hell in the true story of the wor world. Justice, too. Our thoughts, words, actions, and inactions are all known. But, and here's the crucial difference, they are known by the one who comes to save in Christ Jesus. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Jesus suffered hell for our sake. He cleans our record with his precious blood and then he clothes us with his righteousness. The Heidelberg Catechism, one of our confessions of faith, spells the, spells the, the power of this out in such, in such a wonderful way. Question 60 asks, how are you righteous before God? Answer, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined towards all evil, nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned, nor been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is accept this gift with a believing heart. Let's let that settle in for a moment. It's the last part that gets me every time, that nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God credits to me his righteousness, Christ's righteousness, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me.
That's the freedom, the power of knowing Christ and being found in Him, to live in that joy. The German Bible scholar Martin Luther spent much of his life wrestling and wondering about his status before God. He felt the weight of his sins. He had nightmares about it. He tried to take comfort in the practices and patterns of his church, but no amount of time in the confessional booth ever gave him the assurance he so desperately craved. Then it hit him while studying the book of Romans. He read the verse, "He, um, He who through faith is righteous shall live. And as he studied that text, the joy of the gospel flooded into Luther's heart, and he came to see that God had credited Christ's righteousness to his account. And this is how Luther describes the experience. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. That's the power, the power of this this pearl, this pearl of great price. And I experienced it myself recently. On Friday morning, I woke up feeling tired, physically tired because I didn't get a good night's sleep the night before, but also just tired of myself. If you've ever had that feeling, I'm sure some of you had. So I pulled out my phone and I hit play on a song we sang last week. Maybe you can sing this with me. Lost are saved, find their way at the sound of your great name. All condemned, feel no shame at the sound of your great name. Every fear has no place at the sound of your great name. The enemy, he has to leave at the sound of your great name. Jesus, worthy is the Lamb that was slain for us. Son of God and man, you are high and lifted up, and all the world will praise your great name. There is peace here. And I feel like half of what we need to do as a community is not really to do anything but to rest in this gospel message, to soak it in, to preach it to ourselves, to rejoice in it, to keep singing it, to keep reading it, to keep confessing it, to allow it to continue to shape and transform our life, and to not allow any philosophy, tradition, or person to take it away. How easy is it to forget? 
We long for something concrete to put our confidence in, to prove ourselves to be worthy of love, to feel like we're making progress towards the good place. Maybe if I volunteer enough or give enough money, maybe if I say and do all the right things, if I, if I get baptized or make profession of faith, then I'll have something tangible, something I can hold on to, something concrete that I can show to God and say, look, this is what I did. Please accept me. But the only thing that is needed is to receive the pearl of great price and to rest in the grace of God shown in Christ. Paul's former passion was to be as blameless a Jew that he could be. He thought this was the pathway to God, but all that became garbage when he got to know Christ Jesus. And now Paul has a new passion and it comes out in the rest of chapter 3. He wants to know this Jesus as deeply as possible, to live in the power of his resurrection, to know him in his sufferings. Some of the words and phrases that Paul uses in this chapter are, are difficult, but the point is simple, I think. Like the merchant who forsook all for the poor pearl, Paul is now all in on the one whose righteousness is his through faith. He, bought, he wants to be where Christ is, dedicate himself to Christ's cause, to follow after his risen Savior on the road that moves from death to life. Sometimes it feels or seems like Paul is just transferring his former Jewish zeal now to the Christian walk. Sometimes we just want to say, relax, Paul. Enjoy the grace of God for a moment and stop all this striving. But that misses the point too. Paul's not running to make the team anymore. Rather, he's pressing forward in the joy that he belongs. And he simply wants to continue running, continue pressing forward to experience all the riches of life with Christ. I read a Dallas Willard quote a few days ago, and I think it aptly describes what Paul describe, uh, says in the second half of this chapter. The path of spiritual growth and the riches of Christ is not a passive one. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Effort is action. Earning is attitude. You have never seen people more active than those who have been set on fire by the grace of God. And isn't that Paul? One who has been set on fire by the grace of God. So he runs without looking back. He presses on towards the prize. And he encourages us, not just the church in Philippi, but the church of all ages and all places, to follow after him as he follows Christ. That we too would know Jesus and the joy of being found in him and experience the freedom of his righteousness that we might too experience the power of the resurrection together as we press on in the face of suffering towards the prize. Stand firm in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And let, him, let His grace set fire to our living as we press on. Let's drop the luggage that no longer matters. Drop it. Rubbish, the former things that we used to put our confidence in. Garbage, leave it behind. 
receive the pearl that transforms everything. Know Christ and live. Amen.